0: Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Hey,
1: this is Oteal. If you're liking what you're hearing, head on over to patreon.com forward slash comes time pod and get your bus pass for an extra episode every week. Welcome back to another episode of Comes of Time. That
2: right there is O'Teal. And that right there is a very happy Mike. (laughs) Yeah, pretty happy. We just had uh, my favorite psychedelic uh, member of the, what would the league be? What would the the league of psychedelic (laughs) superheroes be called? We'd have to, we have to come up with a name. Rick Doblin from MAPS uh, joins us today. And uh, man, from the moment we started,
1: this could have went 10 hours. Yeah, I had, I had many more questions for him. I really did. But we got to we got to we got to the 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 big one, so I was really glad for that. And he stuck around for a long time. He wanted to stick around longer, but he's he a busy a man.
2: Time. He's he's doing the uh I don't want to say the Lord's work. He's doing all of, all of the Lord's. Jesus. No, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to minimize him by saying the Lord. I think he's doing every lord, every universe's work. Um he's been like he's been a hero of mine for a while because of his balls. Because of his like stepping up and asking, you know, I like action. I hate words. I like action. And he's all about action. And, you know, when he gets into who they have gotten the support of on the political side of things. I mean, it's just mind blowing. You won't
1: believe it. Absolutely. I'm still in shock. I mean, could you believe that? Yeah. There's a there's a lot. There's so many. Really important, really, really super relevant for our time right now, things in this podcast. Yeah. And we should all be super grateful for this, man. I'm telling you, watch this one. Don't sleep on this one, man. Well, and you know what
2: else too? And it's it doesn't, it, I'm a broken record, but it doesn't matter who we have. It's all about the interconnectedness of people. And it's all about, like being open and being vulnerable and being, you know, that's the, it, it. it's just the frequency finds our guests.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, this was really something. So thanks Rick uh, Thank and maps and everybody who's involved and uh, go to maps.org to find out more. Um, we're on Osiris podcast network, home to so many great podcasts. Check them out at Osirispod.com. You can find us at comes dot com. Our new website comes comesatimepod.com time.com, comes time um, Patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod for bonus episodes each week. And we are brought to you by Garcia's handpicked cannabis. It's pretty great
1: to have them as a sponsor. And <laughs> sure uh, is, from the still kind of can't believe it, you know. I mean, it I don't know. It feels really good that they're like Placing that kind of faith in us. Yeah. So totally. uh, yeah. I um I still am a little like walking on a cloud about that. <laughs>
2: well, I'll be walking on a cloud in about three minutes after I open <laughs> up the beautiful jar and the packaging and everything down to the uh the finger missing joint um, you know, holders. The <laughs> the pick shaped uh, edibles um go to garciahandpick.com and find out all about it but uh enjoy this episode with rick doblin and uh he's an extremely busy man we can't thank him enough for for joining us and uh love you Oteal. love
1: you too man <laughs>
2: It is. Uh, it's an honor to have you here uh, with us, Rick. You know, in the uh, in like the the we all have our favorite superheroes and we all have our favorite you know uh, <laughs> team members. And in the psychedelic league, I have to say, I think you're probably one of my favorites, <laughs> if not my favorite. Uh, uh, a New Englander, a uh, popper of balloons, and an honest uh, person. Uh, to the core so it's a real <laughs> honor to have you we've had Fatiman and Stamets and all those guys and I'm like we got to get Rick on man uh,
3: oh <laughs> thank you you know there, there was this um joke kind of there was these trading cards called psychedelic republicans to, to make uh, <laughs> fun of republicans but you know it'd be different republicans in congress with, or you know politics <laughs> with just psychedelic imagery and stuff so uh, maybe one day we have to like uh Psychedelic trading cards or something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a comic book with all you guys. A friend of mine showed me something he got when he was supposedly 18. I think it was from Keezy. It was a little card, like almost like a fake membership card, but I think it said the League of the Sufficiently Twisted. Does that <laughs> yeah. ring a bell? <laughs> that does. I've never but, seen that. No, but it sounds <laughs> like it would be from Keezy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, actually, I think it was from Leary. I think it was from Leary. Oh. Oh, the League okay. of the Sufficiently Twisted I don't know. One of those- Babs and them used to hand <laughs> out cards like
2: passing like saying that they got passed. Like that you you're a <laughs> member of the either the Sky Pilot Club, which is Babs's other uh gang. <laughs> He's, he's had pilot, but, uh, Uh, yeah. Or you pass the acid test. (laughs) Yes, that's right. That's right. Well, you've been, uh, extremely busy, huh? You are, uh, you're going to have the Guinness Book of World Record for the most amount of podcasts in a month or what?
3: (laughs) That's true. Well, I, I think that our research is starting to succeed in a big way. And so I see the main issue now is public education. And trying to prepare people for what's going to be happening and it's not so frightening and it doesn't turn everybody into hippies and they drop out and you're not all going to get psychotic and go crazy and you're not going to have deformed babies from chromosome damage and stuff. So I think the public education is something I'm very much um, focusing a lot of my time on.
1: It must be a relief. I mean, how did you survive the 80s? I mean, I lived through all the Nancy Reagan, just say no. I mean, just 50 years of propaganda. But you were like doing this back then when it was at its height. Like the book, you were the boogeyman. Yeah. Well, I think in 1984 is when I worked with the first PTSD
3: patient with MDMA. And I Ah. saw that it worked. And that's where I had a nonprofit before MAPS. And we organized to try to... Uh, protest once we knew the crackdown would come against MDMA because it was an underground therapy drug under the code name ADAM, but it was also being used in public in ecstasy. So it was clear that it was going to be doomed because Nancy Reagan was, you know, out for blood. And the problem with MDMA was that there weren't any problems. <laughs> you know, here you've got this drug that people are taking, they're enjoying it, they're not going nuts, it's, you know, and so That got in the narrative, that got in the way of the narrative of the war on drugs. And it was heartbreaking when um, we actually won the first lawsuit against the DEA to try to keep MDMA's therapeutic use legal. And the DEA administrative law judge said it should be Schedule 3, meaning illegal for recreational use, but legal for medical use. And the administrator of the DEA rejected the recommendation. Hmm. And we won twice in the appeals courts on their rationale eventually the DEA lawyers figured it out, how to satisfy the courts. And so MDMA is criminalized. And that's where I realized in 86, the only way is through the FDA. I didn't know that, you know, 35 years later, we'd still be working on it. But um, I didn't know that it would ever work, actually. So in some ways, it's great. But it was, yeah, it was heartbreaking, because there was so much healing going on. And the whole concept of the drug war of prohibition. It's not about drug abuse. It's about repression of minorities of different kinds. It's never about really trying to help people who are struggling with drugs. Right. About making it worse for the people that do the drugs with impure drugs and political and police pressure. So yeah, it was heartbreaking. But how I kept going on it, well, I'll just say that I had a dream in my early 20s and it's the most um, important dream of my whole life. And um, if you've seen the movie 2001 Space Odyssey, Mm -hmm. and in the end, the astronauts on this deathbed in this all white room before the birth of this kind of star child. And so in the dream, there's somebody who's lying on this bed. He's he's dying. And he tells me that earlier in his life, he was almost killed, but he survived miraculously. And he knew he survived for a purpose, but he wasn't sure what the purpose was. And then he said, let me show you what happened. So this is still in the dream. And this is early, my early 20s. And now we're off at um, the edge of town, outside a town in Poland. And it's been captured by the Nazis. And they've got these thousands of Jews lined up in this big open grave. And they machine gun them. And he's one of the ones that was um, machine gunned. And he was buried alive. And he wasn't killed. He was just wounded. And then after three days, and kind of the Jesus resurrection theme, after three days, he rises. He, he comes to consciousness. He crawls his way out. Of the dirt and nobody's there at the edge of town he runs into the woods and he lives with the partisans and he survives the war and then then he says that's what happened to me so now we're back in the room he's on his deathbed and he said now I know why I was saved and I'm like oh wh- why is that he said it's to tell you to study psychedelics and to try to become a psychedelic therapist and to try to bring back psychedelic research and in my mind still in the dream I'm thinking well when I was 18 years old, I did decide that this is what my life's going to be about. So I was saying, okay, I can accept this and you can die in peace. I will do this. And then he dies in front of my eyes. And, and that's, so no matter how hard it is from Nancy Reagan or anybody like that, <laughs> the voice to the Holocaust is
2: like, you got to do this. Meanwhile, Nancy Reagan's having a dream going, Nancy, this other guy's having a dream. And my enemy's there. And you got to stop it. Wow, what an unbelievable man. And you still remember it that vividly. That's oh, phenomenal. Well, yeah, I mean, there's other parts of it. Well, I'll just say the
3: last part that sort of wraps it up, too, is that so after this guy dies, I've decided I've accepted this and I walk outside and instead of somewhere in space, I'm in the woods and there's a stream in front. And um, I, I was reading Siddhartha and Herman Hesse and all these kind of books. So yeah. I sit down and I'm just watching the river go by quietly. And then I notice there's a young boy who's sitting next to me and I look down at him and I realize I know this boy. And this was at a time in my life where I had a large stash of LSD and I was worried about being busted. And his father was a friend of mine and his father was storing my LSD stash at his house in his freezer. So whenever I wanted to trip, I'd go to his father's house and and take some of the LSD. And then I connect this guy, this young boy with LSD. And I'm like, "Ah," and that's when I woke up. That was the end of the dream.
2: Did you end up moving the stash to another house? Did you follow that part of the dream? No, but since I mentioned that I had uh, wolves, I'll just say that uh,
3: I had a wolf. Um, so one time I went to this guy's house and um, he was gone. He had a big Doberman. And the Doberman was like, I was friends with Doberman. but The Doberman wasn't, he was kind of a guard dog, Doberman. So this Doberman is uh, guarding the freezer. And I want to get my asset and I can't get into it. And I my wolf at the time was um, only about uh, four months old. It was a full-bred wolf. Um, and so I thought, maybe I'll just see what the wolf can do. So I, I get the wolf is very friendly. Wolves are born with their eyes closed and they were taken away from their mother and bottle fed by the Humane Society people. So they bonded wow. on people. So these were unusual wolves. Wow. And I got um, the, the most dominant of the litter to try to teach me confidence. But I get this <laughs> little wolf out and let him go. And he's just so fearless in certain ways. They're the top predator and all <laughs> And so he just walks by this Doberman and looks at him, just like steps on him. And the Doberman is so confused, he just gets up and leaves. And then I can go to the freezer and get my
2: acid.
4: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah.
2: Two, yeah. We're five minutes in. This is already my favorite episode ever. <laughs>
1: fantastic. That's kind of a psychedelic <laughs> experience in itself. In itself. Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
3: well, I learned so much from this wolf. I'll just say that it's one of the most important things I ever did in my whole life was spend two years with this wolf. And Mm -hmm. I learned to howl with them. And I lived at the edge of town, and there was enormous amounts of land right across the railroad tracks. My house was right on the inside of the railroad tracks. And then it was vacant land. It's all developed now. Mm -hmm. But back then, and this is 75, 76, 77. And so I used to be able to run with the wolf off the leash through these woods, little wow. um, ponds and stuff. One pond had an alligator, but we knew as long as we could see the alligator, it was safe. We somehow didn't think maybe there's two alligators. <laughs> but, um, and we would just run through the woods. And I got to know the woods so well that I could run under the full moon at night mm. or if even close to the full moon. And we would just, me and my wolf would be cruising through the woods, jogging. Like God. It was just fantastic. Howling. Howling. <laughs> and and I, I learned a lot of things. And I'll say the main thing I learned from him is that he had such an abundance of energy that, that he would just go straight through. If there's a hill, he'd go over it. If there's a bush, he'd go through it. He would just have, this is where I'm going. He goes there. Yeah. And in our modern society, if you look like the sidewalks and the driveways, they're, they're, they all kind of go around a ditch. or They're not always the direct way. Yeah. And so I've kind of learned to try to go the direct way. And I'll often like go off the sidewalk through the grass or down in a ditch and up. And I do that. Usually I, I get to places before other people get there. Because it's a little bit more extra work, but civilization takes you the easy way and the wolf goes the direct way.
1: Exactly. See, you just answered my question how you got through the 80s <laughs> <laughs> with a wolf That's how he <laughs> the, like, when yeah. you channeled your wolf spirit
2: like I'm going this way <laughs> well and Rick when you're talking about that you know what I'm thinking is that like that wolf to me has a child like spirit where it's, you know, when you're a kid, you don't understand, like there's that fearlessness where you're running and you're going to catch a ball and you're not worried about tripping on a stump or knocking the wind out of yourself or whatever. And as you get older you and you've broken a couple bones or whatever, you're like, well, got to walk carefully. Got to let's stay on the sidewalk. So that wolf seemed to, yeah, Yeah. bring back the child (laughs) in you. Oh, it sure did. And, um, Which is what well, psychedelics I, do, I guess, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, and I learned confidence from him. And um, most of the dogs didn't like him uh, just because he smelled differently. But yeah. um, there was only one time where I was cruising with him through the woods where we went swimming in this little pond. And he got up on one side and I was on the other. And I, I called him to come with me, to come back. And he looked at me like, no way. And he just took off
0: is the only time
3: it ever happened. And I didn't have a collar on him because I didn't want him to be less than free, you know? So he had no um, identification. And we were at the edge of town. I thought he was going to go out away from town and be killed by a rancher or something with cattle or something like that. And overnight, he was all gone and I was so sad. And then in the morning, I get this call from someone who says, my female German shepherd is playing with a wolf in the front yard and I think it might be your wolf. (laughs) And and it turned out he went about 10 miles into town and he ended up about a month before this. I had um, had an event at at the college where um, I brought in these people that travel with wolves and they educate people. that It's not like Little Red Riding Hood. These wolves are actually phenomenal animals. They don't attack humans. It's like drugs. The myth of the horrible, murderous drugs, murderous wolves, that the reality is totally different. And this guy had come to this uh, talk, and I brought my wolf to this talk, and these other people traveled with wolves, and and he knew who's wolf. wolf. So somehow my wolf went 10 miles to find a female German Shepherd that he would play with wow. at the house of somebody that happened to know that it was my wolf.
1: Whoa. It was just miraculous. Whoa. That's, he might yeah, have smelled that's not that, an accident. He might have smelled that German Shepherd on that guy. You know? It, you know, who knows that they are that, <laughs> you know, their, their smell is great. But I think it was just
3: finally that's an animal that would play with them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's playing too in the yard
3: When the guy wakes up in the morning and that's too much. Yeah. There was one time about I'll just share, the last wolf story, but this is a, a story about love. I'll say, this is the story of what I've learned from my father. So after I gave him away, I finally, one night when I was cruising through the woods, um, I rounded a corner and, um, sort of out into an open area, and I I felt like I had been uh, punched in the stomach, because what I saw was a straight line, and what it was was a bulldozer, and the land was starting to be developed, and I knew as long as I couldn't um, run with him, that um, he wouldn't really be like a wolf, and it turned out that um, the zoos were full, the sanctuaries were full. That's why the Humane Society put them in people's houses. They didn't know what to do with them. Mm. But I found that there was a fellow that had a female wolf that needed a mate at a wolf sanctuary, and he did uh, politics. He, he was outside of D.C., and he would take the wolves in to show members of Congress. So oh. um, I gave him away. But every couple months, I would go visit him from Florida up to D.C. just to visit my wolf. And at one point, um, this is now when he was two year, two years away. He was four years old. And that's when they come into their own in the pack. And this female wolf was captured in the wild and, and didn't like people. And so I, I and the fellow that was taking, that had the wolf sanctuary brought him out to me for me to take him out for a walk. And he had a glove on and a chain wrapped around the glove for the chain leash. And the wolf is growling and it's like, hmm, I, and I'm thinking maybe he's growling for this uh, female wolf to sort of show that he's now in charge. So I discount it. Then I try to pet him and he's, um, he doesn't welcome my touch. And I think this mm. is kind of a problem, maybe. So I think I got to assert my dominance. I've been away for a couple of months. Um, so I get away and I, I, about six feet away and I stare down at him and I'm staring at him um, to try to, and, and, and they call it a lot of the stare of death. Sometimes when wolves corral their prey, sometimes they'll look at each other and there'll be a decision. Do they attack or do they run away? You know, how much energy does this animal have or not? So I'm staring at this wolf, and all of a sudden, it's like his eyes glaze, like he's looking past me. And then this ripple goes through his body, like he's tensing his muscles. And I'm thinking, this is not going well. And then he leaps as fast as he can, and he leaps it so fast and so strong, he pulls the chain out of the guy's hand, and he's coming at my head. And this was a game we used to play. We used to play wrestling like this, like judo or something. Like he would try to push me over. And I try to catch his back paw and flip him on his back, and he would run off and come at me in a different direction through weeds and grass in in there where I, the big pen I had him, and we'd do this for like an hour or so, just this kind of wrestling me and as well, so I was kind of out of practice though and i I went to hit his jaw to push him away, and I missed, and he got my wrist right in his jaw and this is as he's sailing by me, and he just crunches my um wrist just enough to say like tag i got you and i'm looking at him right now and i push him away and then he lets go i push him away and um the fellow ruffin harris gets the chain link and 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 that was the last i was ever to be with him he challenged me for dominance and wow. i was really sad this was you know i identified with my wolf this is like he challenged me for dominance and i was uh, that night i called my parents and just told them what happened and i was really sad and at one point, though, my dad said, what's the problem? You did it to me.
1: <laughs> wow. Oh, Nature. my God. Nature. Man. Yeah, and, and it changed everything I thought about. it. Okay, he's not my wolf anymore. He's, he's his own wolf. And he's a man. Wow. Wow. wow.
2: That's, That's unbelievable, man. man. What a great yeah. story.
1: How big did he get? Because I, when I lived in Grant Park in Atlanta... Uh-huh. Some dude had a wolf and I think it was bred with something else. I don't think it was a hundred percent wolf. I remember they were working on a bridge. There was this narrow thing that you could walk to and the wolf was on the other side. And I was about to walk across and I just stopped because his head was so high. And when I found the guy was like, come on, when I got up close to him, his paws were enormous, it was an enormous creature. It was big. Wow. Yeah.
3: Yeah, these were like smaller than Great Danes. I mean,
1: they're they're bigger than a normal
3: German Shepherd or so, but they're they're yeah. not. They they weren't as enormous. And and I had him when he was still growing. Yeah, so he was about 70, 80 pounds, but but he was so oh, gentle. Yeah. And they have such um good control of their jaws. Oh, here here's another thing about wolves that's in a way better than people, which is that when they have this struggle for dominance in the wolf pack. And usually they will have the younger wolves as they're starting to feel stronger, they have a little bit of a physical fight with the uh, current leader of the pack, but almost never do they kill the old wolf. they okay. find a way where the wolf finds a new place in the hierarchy, but wow, they keep the wisdom of the old they don't kill them and so in our societies, a lot of times you see this where you know revolutions all that they kill the old people that are you know, the yeah. new people take power, they kill the old people. But that's not the way wolves and wolf pack have learned to
2: survive. Well, and also, if you think about, like, Native American communities always revere the elders and yeah. make sure that they're taken care of. And and that's something that's they probably learned through observing wolves.
3: Yeah, I think so. Oh, and just them. by the way,
2: so there was this seven-year-old girl that was – um
3: um, her brothers had, um, snakes and dogs and stuff, and she lived in the neighborhood and she was a friend of my, uh, of my wealth. I called him Phaedrus. The book was Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Phaedrus is the character and it's the Greek word for wolf and it's, uh, it's in the Plato dialogues. You know, Phaedrus is the guy from the countryside and they talk about it as the taming power of love.
0: Is oh, the dialogue and,
3: and but this uh, woman Holly Pipple, She was a little kid, but she loved this wolf. Now she's out in Montana. She's grown up, of course, and she uh, is a wildlife photographer. And she she works on Ted Turner's ranch, and he's mm. breeding wolves or, or not breeding wolves, but letting them live there. And nice. he's got this enormous ranch, so that she's uh, does all these photographs of wolves wow That's out in the wild how it's neat so, yeah i'm so glad we had a chance to
2: sort of divert from totally that. no it's all <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know but that that phrase the taming power of love it makes me think you know as i was reading up on your or watching interviews that you've done about the varieties of psychedelic experience and the, how dreams are a psychedelic experience yes. that everybody yes. can relate yes. to that might be afraid of drugs and i Think religious experiences and stuff. Like, that. what if? What do you think about love being like the ultimate psychedelic experience? Oh yeah. Okay. So uh, I'll. Um, okay. So now I'll say.
3: So I took MDMA by myself. I, I totally agree. And I took MDMA by myself in 1985, camping out all night. And this was on the edge of the Pacific Ocean in Big Sur,
4: and Boy. so the mountain
3: came down right behind <sighs> me. Yeah, There was a bunch of boulders out in the ocean, and so the high tide came around me, but I had this little perch where I was uh, protected from the water. But the water was around, very close, and the sky is incredible. The stars there are amazing. There's not much light. And I was working with Brother David steindl who's a Roman Catholic monk. He's a kind of mystic, and he's very ecumenical, but he was willing to try MDMA, I met him in 82 and MDMA was still legal. He was willing to try MDMA in the monastery in half doses as an aid to meditation. It mm. quiets your mind. You can really focus. Mm. And if you have this deep moment, you can sometimes um, learn how to do that on your own without the drug. That's, right. that's the idea of the therapy. You have this experience and then you integrate it without the drug. Or, and so Brother David was very much um, finding value in MDMA there, there was one other monk uh, that was using MDMA. At one point, Father Bruno, who was the head of the father of the monastery, came and he said he wanted to have a meeting with me. And he said, "What are my monks doing with your drugs?" <laughs> um, but I explained it to him, and he said, "Okay," he let it continue.
2: Nice, <laughs> amazing. So, big anyway, sir, I, man, can't
4: beat it.
3: <laughs> big sir is totally right. Yeah, it's uh, the Camaldoli's monastery. It's it's beautiful um, by Lucia, right, right, right a little bit um, south of. Big sir So, in any case, I'm, I'm thinking, why would somebody want to be a monk, and why would you want to have a celibate life, and and what the like? So, at, so I'm camping out, and I have this sense like the enormity of the universe, and how I would just um, disappear, like like the the stars are enormous, the roaring of the ocean, and I kept thinking, you know, I'm just gonna disappear into this. Why? And after a while this kind of merging of all of this. I realized I'm still here and I'm like well why am I still here and then I had this feeling that um, that I was here because of gravity and that gravity was sort of holding us together and then I had the sense that gravity is the force of love so that's how it relates to your question that that this um, essence of gravity was this this is love and I actually felt that I was cradled in the arms of gravity And it was as if it was a lover. It was as personal and as human and as warmth emotionally as a lover, but it was gravity. Wow! And this was the most mystical experience I've ever had of my life. And I felt that love is woven into everything in the universe. And it it made I never was as lonely. I didn't have a relationship at the time. I was all on my own. And it it sort of cured a certain kind of loneliness. And so 30 years after that, I was at a conference that brother David was speaking at and, um, I was sitting next to him at dinner and, and I've kept in touch on and off with him. But, um, but this was a great opportunity to talk. And so I said the most mystical experience of my life, it was thinking about you. And I just want to share with you, you know, what you think about it. And, um, I said, first off, you know, I kind of realized that, that, um, this warmth of this experience, part of being a monk is like, um, you don't have romances stuff so, so that you connect with everybody or everything. So you don't personalize it. It's, it's everything. But then I said, it was about gravity and cradled in the arms of gravity. That was my insight. And then he was quiet for a moment. And then he said, I think about gravity every day.
4: Wow. <laughs> it you took me 30 years it. to get that.
3: But, but I think that wow. that concept that love is woven into everything is There's a lot to that, and I think if you can tune into that, you can try to be compassionate about people that are, you know, doing things you don't necessarily like, or or how do we tune into that loving approach, even in the midst of crisis or danger
1: or. It's interesting you do tie it to gravity because I always am reminded that it was a movie. The title was "The Unbearable Lightness of Being," yes, and I remember how much that phrase struck me because the the times that I felt despair or hopelessness or severe anxiety I felt like I didn't have gravity like I could blow away like a leaf I felt untethered hmm. and I never really associated gravity with like comfort necessarily like on the surface that's weird yeah. It's interesting.
3: Yeah. We, we would just be um, atoms, disconnected and off into infinite
1: emptiness. Yeah, but I never tied it to love or safety. Or now you got it's crazy. I mean, you think there must have been something like telepathic going on for him to, you know, be thinking about gravity every day, and you like tuned into that, and just like mm-hmm. that's really that's amazing, man. Yeah. That's yeah, st- <laughs> he, he, he's
3: amazing, too. Uh, brother David steindl he, he has he's known for um, talking about gratitude. So he's written a book called Gratitude is the Heart of Prayer. Mm. Amen. And then, that's and it. And what he, what he says, which is beautiful, is that anybody, everybody is mystic. You know, it's not just mm-hmm. these mystics that if you can have a moment of, like, a deep breath and be grateful, that's the essence of it. Mm. And then yeah. anybody can do that at any time. It's not that you have
1: to be a monk for 30 years. That's yeah. Jerry Garcia, 101. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> or great, but, and not just him, but all of them. Robert Keezy. Hunter, really. Yeah, yeah all of the, uh, all of them.
2: Yeah. You know, earlier in our conversation too, you mentioned confidence a couple of times. And I think that um, when we talk about love, then we talk about gratitude and confidence. I think that one of the things that, whether it's the chemically, uh, induced psychedelic experiences or meditation or floating or writing or whatever it may be. Um, when you're someone that has a lot of anxiety, what you start to realize is that like love and all of that is the absence of a lot of feelings. I think I tend to look at now the opposite of like, if I'm feeling love and I'm feeling gratitude, I take a minute to acknowledge what I'm not feeling. Cause I'm so used mm-hmm. to feeling the opposite, the things that make me critical or the things that make me judgmental or the things that make me more, you know, I think that in lately with experience and with microdoses of psychedelics and stuff, my goal going in is to meet emotions before they take over me. Like I'm trying to catch it a step ahead and use it for what I can use it for and then let it go before it encompasses everything. So I think that that's interesting way to think about it. That love is an ultimate psychedelic experience. And, uh, you know, because it is that feeling of, you can't love your, the moment you can't, if you were sitting in that pocket in big, Sur and you were like, I have to do this, I have to do that. I have to do that. You would have missed yeah. the fact that those waves were even crashing, yeah. but you were loving that moment so much that you were free enough to think of the most simple thing, which is gravity. Yeah, yeah, and it was the MDMA that really
3: helped me also right. to get into that state. But also what you're saying about this flowing, and its I'm sure it's true for music, it's for other things, is that the difference between a difficult trip and a bad trip is resistance.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: so if you're resisting it, it gets to be, quote, what people call bad trip. But if it's if you let it flow, it could be difficult, it can be sad, it can be grief. But if it's flowing through you, it's, um, you live with it and you learn from it. And what we've learned also in psychedelic therapy is that when there's resistance, usually the trip lasts longer mm. because it's like this energy that you're kind of, you know, ratcheting down and it takes us. Yeah. So, so when you resist it, it persists. And it's when the you,
1: psychedelics are like, I'll wait.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting you're
1: because uh, all the religious, you know, systems say you have to surrender. So it's like, quit resisting, surrender, yeah. and then you will you can work through it faster. It's something you said in an interview that is along those lines, said the full expression of an emotion is the funeral pyre of that emotion. Uh, it's, it's part with what you were saying, Mike, about the emotions, you know? And that's how I think of like black church. That without therapists, without whatever, you know, that was in there to go have the full expression of that emotion and get it out. Yeah. And then you're like, then you're good. It's almost, it's not an exorcism, but it's like a, I don't know what you would, what the processing, it's is. Like, like
3: integrating it, processing it. Yeah. That quote is from Stan Groff, who's yeah. my, sort of my mentor, the leading LSD researcher and therapist. He just turned 90. Wow. Uh, he's, wow. he's an incredible man. and. um because sometimes you feel like in an LSD trip, like it'll never end. That that you're, you know, if it's, you're, you're yeah. worried, I'll never be sane again. Or, you know, the, these kind of moments, like it's never going to end. And the solution is to accept that it'll never end. Get get in the full, let it yeah. feel like it's. And at the moment you're fully in this, it'll never end. It'll be like this always. You you stop fighting it. Then it changes.
2: The That's very interesting. You know,
3: yeah. So don't run away from like, oh, I'm going to be trapped here forever. You just okay? That's a possibility.
2: You open to it. You accept it, and then it starts flowing again. When you hear some of the accounts of some of the early um, subjects of the experiments, they had said that you know when their guides were preparing them for you know their guided trips, they said, if you feel like your ego is dying or your body's dying. We're here watching your body, but don't run yeah. from it, run towards it. Just like what you're saying. And, I, and, and l- listening to some of their accounts where I remember one gentleman was talking about how everything but one piece of his jaw Had dissolved. And he was like holding on to this one thing. Like, (laughs) I can't let my whole self go. I gotta keep that one piece of jaw there. And then he remembered, oh yeah, just let it go. And then it all changed and everything turned, you know, and and that's a that's a really incredible way of going about non-psychedelic life. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And it's it's easier to say than to do.
1: Totally. Totally. Yeah. You could see things intellectually. It's always, a, I've, it's like, a. I, I feel like I'm repeating myself so much, but I'm like, it's very simple. It's just not easy. Like it's, yes. you know, it's not rocket science, but it's really hard, you know? Well, difficult. My, like a therapist, that I, I go to a
2: hypnotherapist that oh. I love so much. And, and we were talking about the phrase, no expectations, no disappointment. And how that's like an interesting mantra to kind of live by and that plays into that meeting emotions before they take over you. So instead of getting road rage, give it, you know, all right, let that person regret what they did instead of me screaming at them and whatever. Their karma. Their karma. Yeah. And who knows what they're going through and all that. Right. So, but that no expectations, no disappointments thing is it's one of those it's easy it's easier said than done, you know yeah.
3: well I think of the image of a lightning rod, so you know the lightning rod is there to be protecting the house or the structure, but it's because it's grounded and it lets the energy flow through it. Mm. That's how it's safe it, yeah. it's, it doesn't like prevent the lightning. it accepts the lightning it ro flows through it and it gets grounded and then then it's gone and and that's, <laughs> that's the way right. this idea of psychedelics and emotions you're listening. And that's what we try to do for training therapists is this concept of you are helping these emotions that are really difficult that this person is expressing, that they need to be a lightning rod. You need to be a lightning rod too, so that you don't get burned up. If you're resisting it, you're gonna get burned up and and or burned out. You kinda yeah. have to let it go through you and be ground. and and that's why the therapists need their own psychedelic therapy so that they're grounded in their own lives. Yeah. So they yeah. let it go through because they're exposed to so much pain in the patients that they work with, yeah, you have to be careful not to get overwhelmed
1: by that. And and so if you can kind of let it flow through you, and then that helps the patients let it flow through them. Can you talk about some of the varieties of psychedelic experience? I mean, I know we have already, but I was really interested that you were saying um, like, if you put MDA, MDMA first where people feel safe and then do the more psychedelic one on top of it, and yeah. I, I wasn't really sure what MDMA was until I watched your your oh. podcast. <laughs> so Can you talk about that to some yeah. of the people that might not
3: know? Yeah, that's great. So the, the conversation that I just had before this was with a, a research team, one of these uh, new for-profit psychedelic companies, and they're looking at 5-MeO DMT. And that is from the Sonoran Toad, and it's considered to be the most um, powerful psychedelic um, that we know of it, it's only about 15 minutes or so but it's this sort of blast into the universe away from this kind of ego identification and there's actually people um, that are experimenting where they'll do MDMA first which gives you this sense of self this sense of peacefulness this it's like a deep breath um, reduces fear reduces the amygdala and then on top of that they'll do the 5-MeO-DMT and mm. so you have this sense of safety as you're watching everything dissolve. Wow. And that's great. People have, they, do it, they, it, they call it candy flipping is one of, you know the yeah. recreational thing of MDMA or LSD <laughs> or <laughs> MDMA or psilocybin. So there's more and more therapists <laughs> that are really thinking about that. So that, um, you know, because on the one hand, the classic psychedelics are this ego dissolution, you know, merged with everything, you know, and of course, all sorts of memories and things come up and that's what you work with in therapy. So it's not this beautiful, always mystical connection. You know, it, it sort of reduces the barrier between the conscious and the unconscious mind. And that's what we're talking about, like with dreams or something. But when you have a base of sense of self-acceptance and reduction of fear, then when you layer on top the other psychedelics that are more neutral emotionally, so also what Stangroff has said is that LSD is a non-specific amplifier of the unconscious. Mm, right. They take it and, and you you can't predict what's going to happen. It's it's non-specific. But MDMA is more specific. It's more mm. about warmth, love, connection, self-acceptance, empathy, and and we know it's oxytocin is the hormone that's released with MDMA. So there are different ways to experiment with it and different ways that people use it in therapy. But what I like to do is, the, in a way, the opposite, is to start with the hard stuff, to start with the LSD or the psilocybin, and then stuff comes up, and then people have uh, a challenge, kind of a courageous challenge to let go. You're kind of struggling. And then a couple hours later, you add the MDMA. And then that smooths it out and helps you to integrate it. The parachute. Um, the parachute is a good way. And, yeah. Yeah, and and to give one example, that there was um, one time I was working with, this This is back in 1984 when I knew, this was the first person I ever worked with with MDMA. And I talked about it in my TED Talk, <clears throat> but I didn't tell this part of it there. Um, but w- the, the first session was MDMA and it was like this um, tour of her traumatic history. You know, it wasn't just this brutal rape and physical assault, that it was other things that happened in her childhood and all that. So it was like a tour of all of this trauma. And it was a good start, but i thought I thought of um, MDMA is like polishing the diamond, and I thought of LSD as like the diamond cutter
0: that mm. there's
3: kind of this depth of, yeah. of, of LSD. So you you sort of cleave the diamond and then you polish it with MDMA. So I thought, okay, we'll switch to LSD. This was a week or so after the first session, and she was um, suicidal depression, PTSD. and so with the LSD, um, she got to this place where it was um, a foreign planet. She was on this foreign planet, and there was two suns, and she was baking to death. And it was just this terrifying situation that she couldn't go beyond. The fear was too great. And so I thought, let's add half a dose of MDMA. And, just to, and so we, we did that, and she agreed to do that. And that was the breakthrough. And then what happened was, because of the reduction of fear with the MDMA and self-acceptance, this scenario shifted from two sons to one son. And it was actually after she had been um, raped and beaten up and she was left outside under the sun. Oh, wow. So it turned from something symbolic that it was too fearful for her to deal with, and then the MDMA added this element where it condensed into her own life, her own experience. Wow. Man. And that, that's how these go together. And then what what happened that next was that she explained that it was date rape and that this guy had told her that if she ever told about it or told his name, he would kill her. And oh, this God. was like 10 years uh, before in a different country. But he was wow. cap he had sort of, Made her prisoner in his, yeah. her own mind, yeah. and so for yeah. her to be able to just tell the story and say the guy's name and to tell that wow. broke the spell. Wow. wow! And you know, and then I asked her, you know, um, what did you like about this guy? This was the day, right? And 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 then she um, she kind of vomited, and this idea that she had sort of done it to herself, and not not really at all, but and then she kind of came to this idea that. Um, he liked animals. And one of the things that had made her feel suicidal in a way is that she could never trust her judgment because her judgment had left her so astray. And once she could look at it that, okay, my judgment was he liked animals, I could trust him. And now she can say, okay, now, not everybody that likes animals is trustworthy. She could recover her ability to differentiate Wow. Now she's married. She has a child. She's one of our main therapists who trains other therapists.
2: Oh wow! But that
3: gives a sense Beautiful. of the MDMA LSD combination, and yeah. it's the same way of doing it with, um, you know, psilocybin or five meo DMT, um, other kind of things. But but sometimes when people sail through when they're open and not resisting with LSD or something, you don't need to add MDMA at the end. You know, it's yeah. just a, it's a different approach to do sometimes. And um, I think for a lot of people who are coming to psychedelics sort of new, it's a good way of learning that you have the base of the self-acceptance, the self-love, the, the, the reduction of fear, and then you layer on a classic psychedelic and then you do this dissolving. Yeah. And it's kind of preparing you one day for doing the psychedelic, the classic psychedelic by itself. And because what we're doing is a psychedelic drug development, the FDA wants you to do one, one variable at a time. Mm -hmm. So we're studying MDMA, other people are studying psilocybin, other people, we've done some LSD work, other people doing LSD work and Ibogaine, all these different drugs. Once they're approved on an individual basis, then therapists can start putting them together Mm -hmm. in different ways. And there may even be research one day too about the combinations, but I think it's, it's, there's so much to explore and there's so many nuances. And what, we're really trying to do is build the field of psychedelic medicine. The goal is for these therapists not to be an MDMA therapist or a ketamine therapist or a psilocybin therapist or an LSD therapist. The goal is for them to be psychedelic therapists and then to be able to sort of personalize and customize and combine for each individual patient in their series. And, and I think this is a point for me to add now. The goal is mass mental health humanity as a whole is in danger we're destroying yes. the planet we are killing each yes. other so we need mass mental health and medicalization is one way to change people's attitudes that, that you do science you get the opinion leaders you do double-blind studies and then people can start to see that there are um, certain conditions where you get more benefits than risks I mean people were scared by the acid tests a lot of times people did have difficult experiences they They were dosed uh, sometimes, you know, in the Kool-Aid, not knowing what was in it. And so there's a lot of fear in the culture from all different reasons. But when you end up um, sort of helping prepare people for this, um, it's good. But medicine only goes for people that have diagnoses. And there's a lot of us that we don't have a, a psychiatric diagnosis, but we could learn a lot from psychedelics. And we need a lot. And we all suffer from low-level trauma, depression, just looking at the newspaper and thinking about what happens if authoritarians take over America? What if we lose our democracy? Yeah, right. um, so we need drug policy reform. That, that's where I'm going to. Is We need yeah. legal access for adults to do it, pure drugs. They can get it on their own. We're, we're calling it licensed legalization, where if you misbehave, you lose your license for it. But also we need to educate the young. And so we need to take this back into the families. And you look at the cultures that have successfully integrated psychedelics, like the Native American church with peyote or the ayahuasca churches in South America. They don't have age limits. They have, I was at a Navajo uh, Native American church peyote ceremony. And there was a Navajo man who brought his nine-year-old son to stay up all night with us. And he took smaller doses of peyote, but so I yeah. think that, that we need to have drug policy reform and medicalization, and that's the strategy that we're moving forward with, to try to make a, you could say, a psychedelicized culture that really is grounded in love and that will help us as humanity survive.
2: Thanks for listening. We'll be right back after this.
1: Hey
4: there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at SmartWolf. For more than 25 years, Smartwool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They are here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smart wool, Go far,
2: feel good. What's up, everyone? I'm Mike. And I'm O'Teal. And these are our Sunset Lake CBD gummies that are almost gone. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned business that ships CBD products directly from their farm
1: to your door. For years, Sunset Lake was a Vermont dairy farm producing milk for Ben and Jerry's ice cream. In 2018, they diversified and started growing hemp for CBD. And with a product for everyone,
2: they offer pre-rolls, hemp cigars, and hemp flowers, as well as tinctures, gummies, and CBD-crafted coffee to help with stress, aches, and pains.
1: Sunset Lake CBD saves you money by shipping high-quality CBD products directly from their farm to your door.
2: Want to know what I've been using a lot of, Oteal? this salve with the Arnica Uh, on my, on my old bones. You get back from a show and you got tore ankle, rub a little bit of this on there. You're ready to dance the next day. And you know, Sunset Lake, uh, comes a time listeners can visit sunsetlakecbd.com and use promo code time for 20% off of their purchase. That's sunsetlakecbd.com promo code time and tell them we sent you. Thanks for listening. You know, um, and when you talk about that, I, I think about the, you know, LSD was legal until the government realized that, uh, whoa, this is, people are having a little too much fun. MDMA was, you know, legal <laughs> until, well, I mean, you know, not fun, but it was dangerous. My my thought is that well, with, the, go ahead. Well, with well, it, I was be, to say is that, that I would disagree with that
3: because. Th- there is this thought that um, the backlash against psychedelics was psychedelics gone wrong. You know, okay. people were not prepared. They were having psychotic breaks or they were um, t- occasionally they would jump out of the window. You know, I mean, th- these are yeah. myths that then become really big, but, but right. the idea is psychedelics gone wrong. And that's why we had the backlash right. too much fun is what you said. But, but I'm my, saying, yeah. My, but my view is actually that it was psychedelics going Right. And this going right is this sense of how we're all connected. That's the fundamental yeah. aspect. of it. We're all connected. Uh, it's a sweep of evolution. We're all connected. We have much more in common with people than we have differences. And that led to people to think, why are we going to Vietnam to kill people? Exactly. Right, so of course. Why yeah. are, are we? Um, so so the you can say the rise. Of the, so psychedelics got wrapped up in people that wanted to challenge the status quo for You know, Nixon said his two main enemies were the civil rights movement and the hippies. Right. Yeah. And that he could criminalize the drugs they were using and break up their meetings. And so we had this idea of people also with the psychedelics. When you go through this ego dissolution and you identify not so much with this separate life from birth to death, and that's all we are, but we're part of this big sweep of things that you end up um, looking at death in a different way. And you have a a, a different sense of uh, a certain loss of fear of death and an appreciation for using this precious life that we have as well as we can while we have it. And that gets people more involved in politics. If you have the sense we're all connected. So then you take risks. You're willing to do things. Um, And so from that, I think it was psychedelics going right that challenged the status quo and that's what caused the back.
2: Right. No, totally. And I I agree with what you're saying. And I, I I apologize for saying it in a different way, but what I was going to get at was the fact that, you know, we get this, it it, it was looked at by the big eyeball under a certain lens as a threat. Now that, Terms like microdosing, terms like psychedelics are just kind of being tossed around like it's just coffee shop kind of, you know, like people can go to ayahuasca wherever they do. Do you fear at all ever that like progress that is being made uh, just the way that these like things are kind of in the common vernacular now, like could almost be a double edged sword in a way? Yeah, I mean, you could get to the situation where people approach these experiences too casually.
3: And they're yeah. not properly prepared and they don't realize the depth of what it really means to yeah. challenge your ego. And challenge, And, and yeah. you, people often do confuse um, ego death or ego dissolution with physical death. They feel like they're dying. They're losing their orientation. Mm-hmm. They feel like they're dying. So, so I do worry somewhat that you know people will underestimate the power of these substances and just say, all right, I did this, I did that. Now I'll try this. And then they're not prepared. But I do think that over the last 50 years, since the uh, backlash happened, you could say beforehand in the late 60s, but in 1970 was the Controlled Substances Act. Right. And that's Nixon declares the war on drugs and psychedelic like, you know, research wiped out around the world. That since then, we have made enormous progress as a culture. And one of the things that happened. You know, if you remember the Beatles coming back with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and mm-hmm. learning meditation and he's this strange guy in these strange robes and people were really scared in this. He's like, this is a foreign thing. Now you go to your YMCA and there's mindfulness and meditation and meditation is everywhere. So we've kind of taken meditation from being this weird thing that people in strange countries and weird robes did to something that we all do. Yeah. Also, We've taken yoga, yoga at the time in the 60s. People were worried you do yoga, you get into uh, you know, foreign religion or, or, or this. So we've integrated Cult. yoga. Also, death and birth. In the 60s, um, people didn't talk about death much. Uh, the first hospice in America was 1974. Now oh we have cow. about 6,000 of them. Wow, uh, wow. Women were tranquilized in the 60s and in the 50s when they gave birth. And men were not allowed in the delivery room. Now we have yep. birthing centers and all. And if you look at art and music and the the kind of um, you could say psychedelic jam sessions, even or the imagery in movies and 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 advertising, so we've sort of taken psychedelic imagery, and we basically, as a culture, um, integrated everything but the psychedelics. And the other thing that's different now (laughs) is that there's a general sense that the drug war is counterproductive. You know, it's racist. It's it's um, mass incarceration last year was the most ever of people dying from opiate overdoses. Yeah. Over ninety thousand people died from opiate so how is the drug war helping? And in Man, fact, yeah. the most of the people that died from uh opiate overdoses uh, started with legal opiates from their doctors. The yep.
1: Sacklers, they're their bet the the uh, Pablo Escobars of the yeah. corporate world, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and they're getting away with it too. I mean, they they're are. getting away
3: with their fortune. And um, I actually yeah. had a, a talk with Richard um, Sackler. Really? And, uh, yeah. Whoa. And so, oh, jeez. So this was a couple of oh. years ago, and what um, what I was saying to him is that um, I would like him to donate for ibogaine research. Mm-hmm. So I get off this
1: shit he was peddling. <laughs>
3: exactly. Exactly. And in the end, he said no. Wow! Yeah, and and then a few months later, they came out with this patent on a drug to help you come off of opiates.
1: they got gonna so make like, oh, money God. both ways. Yeah, amazing. it was really it was amazing. pathetic.
3: So, but I did have this discussion with him, and it was wow. Yeah, you, there, there's That's like Marlboro
2: people... selling e cigs. <laughs> so yeah. let me
1: ask so, you this: This is fascinating to me because I never feel like I'll ever be in the position to talk to one of these people. Yeah, is he just like? You know, because I always hear this thing, which I always, my knee jerk reaction is to go, that's bullshit. You go, oh, well, he's actually a nice guy. I'm like, no, man. How many deaths is he responsible for? Right. So, is it it's just that he is just like a capitalist and just sees everything in like a number sheet? Or, I mean, I'm, I'm asking you to make a value judgment that I'm sure yeah. you're not. That's unfair yeah. well, in a way, yeah, but I, I what do you think. This, um, <laughs>
3: I think that people are really good at rationalizing things that they yeah. don't want to see. Yeah, And I, I do think that the blame is always elsewhere. Oh, it's the doctors, or it's the patients are weak. Or I, I think that, well, this is brief. funny. Okay. So he, he started saying is, well, he would need to um, evaluate my proposal. And then he said, our corporate responsibility office that we've just set up needs to look at this.
1: <laughs> said, so this is okay. after the
3: end of the opiate crisis, they finally have a corporate responsibility office. And um, um, and, and they said no even. But I, my guess is that they think of um, that there's loads of people in pain. I mean, it's again, everything is good and bad. The Opiates are great for people in pain. It's just yeah. if you get dependent on it or you oh, overdo it. And, and so I think that they're, yeah. but they, I, I think they're, they're rationalizing and that's my sense is that um he's trying to preserve this idea that they did mostly good and it was out of their hands and other
1: people the FDA did wrong. They're every, the, the, the fault is all everywhere else. And in bureaucracy, there's plenty of blame to go around always. <laughs> uh, yes, well, that's yes. one of the
2: things that you know, even in in I, I like about you in particular, Rick, is that you don't have a problem approaching and asking. For things like you push the envelope, you go donate to this, yeah. or or we need funding for this, or or push this yeah. through like, you know, Congress or whatever. Like you're you're yeah. you're up front, yeah. and that's awesome. Well, the- I, I just came back
3: from Houston on Friday, mm-hmm. where we had an event with Congressman Dan Crenshaw. Oh, so bro. he is oh, um,
1: very much. Much. <laughs> <match. laughs>
3: yeah, he, he's, he's very much that, right. A, a right wing Republican. Yeah. But he's a Navy SEAL. Yeah. And a former he's got an eye patch. You know, and but he has heard from all these Navy SEALs that what they're getting from the VA is not helping them enough. Mm -hmm. And they're going down to Mexico for Ibogaine and Five MEO. And some of them are going down to South Africa, I mean South America for ayahuasca, and some of them are going for underground MDMA therapy. And he's heard enough Mm -hmm. of these people telling these stories that he's now one of our main allies. In Congress and we, Dan Crenshaw, and we have uh, we, I we actually wow. gave him uh, when I was on Joe Rogan, you know, I gave Joe Rogan the um, psychedelic research department t shirt and he wore it during our interview. <laughs> yeah. So, we gave the same t shirt to Dan Crenshaw, <laughs> 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 not
1: the can, exact same, but the same time. Can, so, can we get a couple of yeah, Can we get a couple? Yes, you
3: can. Yes, you can. We'll send you that. Oh, uh, please. They're so good, and then we um, Tim Ryan, who's a member of Congress from Ohio, and he's going to be running yeah. for Senate in Ohio. I mean, his um, talk on the House floor denouncing the Republicans for the insurrection and for voting against the commission, and he's eloquent. I mean, he's like the okay. opposite spectrum of Dan Crenshaw, but they're working together with us wow. on a bill, a bipartisan bill, to give Fantastic. twenty-five million to the Department of Defense for psychedelics and twenty-five million to the VA. So we're finding these um, unlikely collaborators. You know, we do have support from Rebecca Mercer, who is one of the main funders of Trump and Bannon. And she owned Bright Yeah, the Mercers. Yeah. Yeah, But but she gave us a million dollars. And the only limitation was that it go for veterans. Just so don't yeah, let we, them veterans,
1: near the formula. Don't no, let them but, near the formula. Yeah, but <laughs> that's, the, that's genius, though, because, you know, these people consider themselves very patriotic. And the veterans, yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. What, yeah. If, if it's helping those Americans, man, yeah. this is, wow. Yeah. You're getting that's funding from made, the Mercers? Wow. Yeah, well, well, and also.
3: Like, yeah. I, and, and so when I was talking with Dan Crenshaw, though, my, my talk was, so it was called the Healthcare Innovation Summit. And this is his third annual one. His mother died when he was 10 from cancer. So he's always mm-hmm. been really interested in healthcare and innovations. And so I got to see the human side of him. But, yeah. you know, I, I was describing how um, we have bipartisan support for this. And and I talked about Rebecca Mercer. We also have support from um, the Koch family. Now, Elizabeth Koch has given us um, almost $6 million. But she says she's not... Uh, She's not her father. She's she shouldn't be identified as a necessarily she wants to be apolitical. But uh Elizabeth Koch is one of our big supporters. So I said we've got money from Rebecca Mercer, from Elizabeth Koch, Rockefeller family. <laughs> My mind kidding. is blown. <laughs> um, Warren Buffett's son, uh, Peter Buffett, Peter and Jennifer, they wow. have uh, the Noble Foundation, they're funding us. Um family, killer, You know, we're getting like the, these major well-known families of all. Of who, and then I said to Dan and on the other side of this, we have George Soros and he's giving us some support from his um, Open Society Foundation. And and so there was Dan was like grumbling, like joking about George Soros. It's yeah, like oh boy, oh, boy, that they good. all want to go after. But but it ended up with this sense of, OK, that's OK. I wish you wouldn't have mentioned his name, but he's with Rebecca Mercer, he, you know, it's this whole field. And I said, we we have managed to take this out of politics. It's above. Yeah. It. It's, yeah. it's
1: not, not well, there, a person the person. The cool thing, though, is that if, imagine if it becomes okay with just Republicans in general. Yeah. And they do some MDMA and feel safe and develop empathy and get all that, and then do some psychedelics of whatever brand. And do see all of us as one, like it literally could save the country,
4: save the world.
1: <laughs> exactly.
4: well, well, that is
2: and our. will take care of delivery. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what got me when I was 18. So I was 1972. And this is, again, before the dream that I described. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I was a draft resistor for Vietnam. So, uh, you know, I, Martin Luther King said this incredible thing, which was, um, if you think a law is unjust and you're willing to violate the law and suffer the consequences as an example to others about the unjust nature of the law, actually you have the highest respect for the law. So he was trying to reframe civil disobedience as patriotism.
4: Mm, And
3: so that's where I felt like I'm I'm not going to go to Vietnam, but I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to pretend I have a bone spur. I'm just going to go to jail and they'll have to catch me. And 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 also I had been traumatized earlier, you know, by the Holocaust and by the Cuban Missile Crisis, I was blowing things up, yeah. and I just thought, it's a crazy world, what can I do to help make it better? And I started realizing that this um, psychedelic experience, this sense of connection, that that I felt is the antidote. If we can yeah. feel reconnected, that, and, that, uh, and that's where I said, okay, at 18, this is, you know, This is what I'm going to devote my life to. It's it's a long-term plan. It might not happen right away. It still has. But if we can bring this together forward and we can accept psychedelics instead of suppress them, people can have these experiences. And actually, there's one of our projects is in Israel. There are Israelis and Palestinians that are doing ayahuasca together and MDMA together. Oh, my God. These are small groups. They're the most peace minded of them, but they still have all their fears of each other. And one of the Israelis said, "Wow!" the huh. first year is interviews. We're doing this with um, Lior Roseman and Robin Card Harris at Imperial College. And the first year was interviews. And one of the Israelis said that w- during this ayahuasca session, they played Arabic music. And he said, previous to that, whenever he'd hear Arabic music, it would get him fearful. He would be thinking mm. about the enemy, the other. Yeah. But under the influence of ayahuasca, he could see the beauty in the music. Oh it was God. this kind of um, experience that he felt like all of a sudden, it's not like we're Israelis or Palestinians or Jews or Muslims or Christians, that we're all one and I can appreciate this Arab. That was his breakthrough, was appreciating music. Arabic music. Wow. And Beautiful. so there, there is this kind of... Um, Hopeful thought. And so what, what we've joked is that if we can help these Israelis and Palestinians, then we can work on the harder case in the U.S. of Democrats and Republicans.
4: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and,
2: and, and, you know, as you're telling that story, I'm kind of thinking about veterans. I'm not a veteran and I would never, ever begin to, um, you know, pretend like I've ever experienced anything of that magnitude. And I, I can only imagine how load off their shoulders refreshing an ego dissolving psychedelic experience would be. I mean, just because when you're pumped full of, you know, this is what you're fighting for. This is what you're doing. You know, this, this, that you always have to kind of have that, you know, guard up, shield up, don't trust anyone kind of. And then to be able to get a, you know, someone to like a, a, a chemical or a substance or a spirit to go, you could put the shield down you're a human and love yourself and we're all part of a bigger thing, man, that has to be a massive load off. It is. And a lot of times people
3: say, and I think it's true that it's harder to forgive yourself than it is to forgive other people. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of these veterans have been in situations where they've had to defend themselves by tactics where innocent people get killed. Um, Or at least that's their, their sense. And so a lot of this... Well, to give you an example, one one of the veterans, um, the imagery, so under the influence, so it's eight hour session with two therapists for one person and two therapists for one patient last eight hours. Most of the time, um, well, they're listening to music and they have um, eye shades on. And around half the time, it depends on different people, they're um, having their Inner imagery—it's like metaphors and stories. It's like poetry, metaphors. They're telling them—they're—they're they're telling themselves the story of their lives, and they're kind of trying to rewrite the story. And then the other time, they're talking to the therapists. But this one veteran had this image of um, his problem was rage it, that he came back from Iraq. He's super easy to get mad, and um, and other symptoms, nightmares, all this stuff. He was very problematic with PTSD. But he had this image of this gorilla inside him and that this Mm. was the warrior self that he came back and locked it up because he said when he was in Iraq, he learned what it could do and he didn't trust it. So he's got this part of himself locked in a cage. And the imagery was that this gorilla is like reaching through the bars with a knife and stabbing him in the side. And it's got these evil red eyes looking at him. And, And under the influence of MDMA, though, with the reduction of fear with this, he's able to look at this. And he's realizing that the fact that he's keeping this part of himself locked up is making it worse, that it's making this gorilla more upset and that he needs to make friends with it. So he pulls the knife out of his side. He opens the cage. He embraces this part of himself. Wow. And the red eyes are no longer so evil red eyes. And he felt that they had to kind of go forward together, that this was a part of himself. And this was now his first MDMA session. He had several more after, but he never was uh, as enraged after this experience. You know, he threw things at his wife. He never hit her, but but he was just easy to explode like that. Yeah. And this one imagery of making friends with this part of himself that he didn't quite trust that cut the rage away. And and so yeah, I think that so many people uh, just to go even further, um, which is hard for me, you know, but the police. You know, because it's mm-hmm. drugs and I've always feared the police and, you know, I thought the police are the predator and I'm the prey. Yep. And it's been difficult. But lately I've been realizing, and this is what you say about going to, un- to unlikely places. So we actually wanted to speak to the police about MDMA therapy for police officers with PTSD. A lot of police, yeah. if, if you're the military, you have preferential hiring after you leave in police officers so the you have a lot of police have a military background but they're Makes traumatized sense. in the military yeah. now they're in a job that they see the worst of humanity and so we decided uh through we have a senior retired dea official that is our main consultant now for the police and the dea that's because his son went to iraq came back with ptsd and found marijuana to be helpful for his symptoms yeah. and that changed the mind of the father so we went to this uh we arranged for us to speak at the international association of chiefs of police. So it's like 10,000 police chiefs and their senior staffs from all over the world, mostly America at this big convention. And we were going to talk about MDMA therapy. And two days before that president Trump decided that these were his people. He was going to speak there uh, and they scheduled his talk at exactly the same time as our talk. Uh, so, We get there and there are thousands and thousands of people waiting in line to hear President Trump. And I'll just say that the uh, exhibit hall was super scary because it's all this new police technology for new batons, new shields, new handcuffs, new straitjackets, new ways to listen in on people. In any case, we, we get to our room, which is set for 350 people and there's only 20 people there. But I thought, okay... These are the people that really want to be here. (laughs) And one of them was a psychotherapist. He was a full-time police officer, but he was also a psychotherapist. And after his talk, our talk, he came up to me and he said, I would like to learn how to give MDMA therapy to other police officers. Mm. And I said, great. This is what we're looking for. You know, all we needed was one from this whole conference. Yeah, totally. give you a scholarship. You'll come to our training. And he has since now gone through our training and, I met his police chief a couple times, and I, my, my own nephew now is a police officer in Washington D.C. My square sister, who my, my other brothers have all done psychedelics and marijuana, my sister I've never able to get her to MDMA <laughs> or even marijuana, and her son becomes a police officer. Let's see, so now I got police in my own family, even. But the balance. This, but I met this other uh, this guy's police chief. And I said, there's another part of our training, which is, okay, you've watched videotapes of therapy sessions, you understand, but a part of our training is we have a legal protocol with FDA and DA approval where therapists volunteer to take MDMA as a patient in our therapeutic setting, and they go through their own issues, and that's really important. That's one of the best ways we have to train them. And so I said, we'd like to offer this to you. And so his police chief eventually said yes, that they let this police officer... Come into one of our studies to get dosed with MDMA to see how he could then help others. And there's a um, documentary that's going to be made about uh, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. I'm and in the middle of it. There's going right to be now. four different series, each, each one is going to be on a different drug. One of them is going to be MDMA. And so this police officer was filmed potentially for this documentary when he was taking MDMA for the first time. <laughs> so it's like working with the veterans working with the police so now we have a fair amount of allies we're building among the police even and firefighters of course they they have traumatic jobs and we've had a bunch of firefighters in our studies so we're we're trying to identify where the resistance might come from the culture and how do we make it so that this time around we don't have this you could say like an immune system the society reacted like Oh my God, the counterculture, I got to suppress it all. But now we're trying to come in
2: 50 years later with hopefully a smooth land. And that's where that, that's, that's fantastic. And then, you know, who has to be followed by that is the spouses of. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right.
3: So, yeah. um, one of the things that happened, um, in, um, Austin was, uh, yeah, this fellow, Aubrey Marcus, who started a company called yeah. Onnit for supplements. Yeah. He works with Joe Rogan. Um, they've just um, been bought by Unilever. And mm. so Aubrey's, um, you know, sold his shares and stuff. And so Super rich, I was yeah. telling yeah. Aubrey, so I did a podcast, yeah, with Aubrey. Um, and this was um, on Sunday. <laughs> um, but what was, um, so afterwards we talked and I said the most important non-phase three project that I'm doing, that I'm fundraising for. It's for the spouses in a way. It's called cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy. So, conjoint means mm. couples or dyads where one has PTSD, but you bring the person that they're in relationship with that's affected by their PTSD. Yeah, And those people get ignored most of the time. So, oh Mike, I'm really glad you mentioned that because those people get ignored and so there's this approach where you bring both people into the therapy, the person with PTSD and the, the, their relationship. And so when we've tried to do work with the Veterans Administration and to get them, they are so resistant. But I started in 1990 to say, we'll pay the VA to study MDMA. And we'd work with therapists and doctors and they'd want to do it. And it would always be stopped by politics, by the political stuff. Yeah. But in 2014, we had Senator Jay Rockefeller and Richard Rockefeller, who's chair of the Board of Advisors of Doctors Without Borders, and Senator Jay Rockefeller was on the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. He persuaded the FDA to let us um, pay to do a study with one of their researchers, and she had developed this cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy. And they'd heard yes. about MDMA as the love drug, the hug drug, good for a couple's therapy. So they said, start there. And so cool. we've done now six um, dyads where both of them are in the therapy, but both get MDMA the person with PTSD, and the person they're in a relationship with. And so part of this is couples therapy, and part of it is helping the person with PTSD. And the results were better than anything ever with the cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy without MDMA. The results were extraordinary from these six months. So now we're trying to raise 1.2 million Canadian in order to uh, do a bigger study. And all we needed, we we had more than half, but I needed $480,000, $240,000 a year for two years, and so after the podcast with Aubrey and he just sold on it and, and I said, um, this is my, my big thing that I'm looking for. And um, he said, um, all right, I'll do it. It's done. So Aubrey <laughs> just donated $480,000. Oh, fantastic! And, and so <laughs> wow. it's couples therapy and MDMA for PTSD. And so, and this is what we hope to bring oh. into um, the veterans administration eventually that they can do that as well as just MDMA for the one person. but. Yeah. So the, the spouses. That's and, fantastic. Okay. So that that leads to just another point, which is that um, the psychedelic clinics. There'll be thousands and thousands of these psychedelic clinics once MDMA becomes medicine. They'll start with the patients, but then they will expand into the family members. Yeah. So if you've got somebody that's dying of cancer and you're, you, you know, they're the patient, but everybody's suffering. So yeah. these clinics will eventually, from the patient to the families, and then I think eventually they're going to be like a site of initiation. So let's say you want to get a license to do psychedelics. You want to be able to do this. You first off go to the psychedelic clinic and it's free paid for by all the taxes of the people that are buying it. And you have your experience and you know what you're getting into. Then you get a license. Then yeah. you can go ahead and do it on your own and you can do it in a recreational setting or with friends, or you can do a deep therapy on your own with your peer support. But um, there's a, a group called um, Vets, which is a, uh, Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions, but they're focused on Ibogaine and 5-MEO and MDMA, and Amber and Marcus Capone. Amber was, uh, I mean, Marcus was also a Navy SEAL, and so he knows Dan Crenshaw. He's the one that's helped with others, convince Dan Crenshaw he should get involved. But they've talked about how in these military families, the the military person gets the attention and the spouses are what are left behind.
2: And the kids, and the kids, yeah. But it was so right. No, it's, yeah. it, it, and you know what? It, 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 and it's a take military out of it. Humans, adults that have that gorilla in the cage inside of yeah. them with the red eyes, the children yeah. learn to be scared of that gorilla too. And the grandchildren yeah, yeah. begin to learn to be. And that's where there's this just trend and path that we can break. And that's yeah. mass mental health.
1: Yep. Yes. Now, there's gets- also what's called what, – what you're talking about is multi-generational trauma. That's what I wanted to get into that because you were talking about epigenetic trauma. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Trauma, And that's a big thing. You know, everybody goes through that, Holocaust survivors. And yeah. think about the black community here with slavery, yeah. 400 years of slavery, man. Like yes. that's – you know, Jesus. Through
2: through hypnotherapy, Rick, I've done a couple of uh, experiments. Well, not experiments. I'd say there were, you know, sessions with that where I went uh, back to traumatic times in my past as an adult to stick up for little me and Uh stick up for family members that were around there and whatever. And it was, you know, without the help of psychedelics at that time. But God, it was helpful. And it was just because of the trust I had in my therapist and the notion that, like, you know, th- the past is still alive and all these moments are still there. And you can go back to them and go, hey, it's okay. You don't have to worry. Like, we're here together. We're okay. And I'm so excited to hear about, you know, like yeah. like Otiel said, like that's so exciting. To- Hypnosis yeah. is a
1: variety of psychedelic experience oh, too, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> it's a
3: non-ordinary state of consciousness. There's also a therapeutic approach called internal family systems.
1: Yes, I wanted to have this guy on that I saw talking about that on our podcast. Oh, well,
3: Dick Schwartz. So (laughs) I I know I could connect you guys to him if you want. (laughs) Oh, that would be
4: amazing. But
3: but what he talks about is it's about how um, there's different parts of ourselves, you know, and that what we see with MDMA, it's kind of a proof of this internal family systems because Mm -hmm. people say a part of me is this, a part of me is that. And so, Mike, what you just described is the healthier adult part of you can then have a relationship with the wounded child part exactly. and you can kind of unify these parts. Yeah. And we see that just people automatically without us telling them about it. It's like, Oh, a part of me is the same way the story, the gorilla was a part of him at the end. He said, I know it's yeah. a part of me that I'm doing this too. Right. Not just right. a scoring thing. It's a part of me. So, um, Bessel van der Kolk, uh, wrote this book, um, the body keeps the score. Yeah. And, it's he's one of the, the world's experts on PTSD and he is our um, principal investigator of the uh, Boston site. And the, the amazing thing is that his book body keeps the score came out six years ago. And two weeks ago, it was the number one best-selling New York times book with combined print and ebook. Fantastic. So the whole culture is becoming sensitized. And I'll tell you, I think the thing that you were saying though, about um, sort of, Racial trauma, or not just multi-racial trauma. It's hard. The easier people to treat are those people that have had a trauma in the past, but their current life is more or less safe and supportive. But to treat people who then have to go out into a racist society, where they're continually, that's harder. Because, And then, actually, this is a problem for us, is that we don't have enough minority people volunteering to be in the study. And a lot of them are very, we see it with the vaccine <laughs> hesitation. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and yeah. there's just this sense of not trusting the, the establishment and the medical establishment. Yeah. But we, we've had four um, people that were um, African-Americans, and the, but they, we couldn't let them in the study because the way the measure, the way the FDA says we have to do the study, there's a measure called the CAPS, the Clinician-Administered PTSD Scale. And mm. that's the, the the baseline measure. That's the outcome measure. But the way the CAPS is done is you have to pick one trauma and that's your major trauma. And then oh. that's what you're asked about every time. And so these four <sighs> people who are African-Americans who had a history of multiple, multiple. different kind of traumas,
1: mm, they couldn't
3: pinpoint one to yeah. say everything is the reference trauma. It's like a lifetime of, of problems. Just go,
1: they should just go, I'm black. Yeah, they just point (laughs) to their arm. This this is it right here. I just pick. I'm black, and just it'll cover it. But I see what you said. I'm joking, but yeah, no, but it's
3: it's right. So, so we're we're. (sighs) I mean, we we very much want. So, if people want to volunteer for the study, let me just say that you can go to um, MDMAPTSD um, dot com and or I mean dot org. MDMAPTSD dot org and. You'll learn about um where you could volunteer if you want to do yeah. uh, volunteer for the study.
1: I think there and is a way to, I think there's a way to track the black community though, because I was watching you talk about this in on one of your podcasts, and I know you gotta go really soon, but I thought the thought that occurred to me was like, you know, um I agree with you. Like, my mom was a nurse for 30-some years, and she didn't get her first vaccine till just a minute ago because my sister finally talked her into it. She was not trustful of the medical establishment because she was in it, working at D.C. General Hospital in southeast Washington. Yeah. Right? But the thing is, Black people are very open to psychedelic experiences. I see it in Black church. You know, uh-huh. with yes. dreams with whatever, you know, the music, you know, if you, I play an African drumming group, you know, when you're doing the dance, the dance is a psychedelic experience and the drums and all of it. So there's a yeah. there's a there's a, a lot of uh, harm, harmony there to be had. It's just the establishment part. We got to I, I think yeah. it could be done. And I would love to help do it. Yeah. Well, what we've
3: realized, the other thing, instead of just also calling out to people who might want to be in the study, what we realize we need is uh, African-American therapists and Asian-American therapists and Hispanic therapists. So we actually have what we call the health equity fund. So we even have scholarships for people who are from minority communities who want to become therapists with MDMA. Maybe they're already therapists. Um, we're working also at the University of Baltimore, just to say Good that spot, uh, Bob yeah. Parsons, who was the founder of GoDaddy, billionaire, he's given us $2 million. He just gave $5 million to Rachel Yehuda at the Bronx VA to do MDMA yeah. research, but to also look at epigenetics. But the University of Baltimore has a lot of minority people in their counseling program. So we're trying to then, uh, several of them, about 10 of them are now going through our training program. And then we'll awesome. maybe embed our therapy training in their core curriculum. So, so that's another big need for us is to have more minority people who are interested in um, um, becoming therapists. And and we have our next therapy training program starts in September. Cool. And so you just go to um, the um, mapspublicbenefit.com, which is our pharmaceutical arm. So we've got 125 people and two thirds in the pharmaceutical arm, one third in the nonprofit. And you can learn about the training program. So if people wanted to uh, um, participate, it's online, 100 hours over a couple months, people from all over the world. That, that's a big need of ours. Is, is licensed therapists? Blindness. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. They don't have all you- need to be a licensed therapists. You can be a student wanting to get a license to be a therapist, or you can be like a nurse. You have to have a thousand hours of behavioral health experience. And then the, the, we use a two-person team, a male-female team, not always, but often male-female The lead person needs to be licensed as a therapist, but the second person is an apprentice, doesn't need to have a license.
1: Have you heard of the Black Mental Health Alliance? I have. I was working with with, uh, this other group, Backline, but they'd probably be good. It's going to happen. It's gonna. I can't wait. I hope we we can have you back at some point because I think that's like a whole nother podcast, just the like <laughs> epigenetic trauma and all that. I'm really <laughs> fascinated by all of that. And well, uh,
3: yeah, so I know that Rachel Yehuda would love to do it. So, um, she, so Bob Parsons just gave five million for her for the Bronx VA to do MDMA research. Also, uh, Stephen and Alexander and Racone just gave her um, two point one million, their foundation for this. And so she's very much gonna be looking at epigenetics as she's testing two MDMA sessions versus three. She also wants to do group therapy. That's another big thing we need to move into. And also she wants to train therapists throughout the VA system. But she's done studies with Holocaust survivors and their children and she's identified this epigenetic mechanism and she will now start looking at, does it disappear or change after therapy? After you've gotten Mm -hmm. over a lot of the trauma, can you make it so you don't pass it on to your kids?
1: That's mm. what I want to do because I yeah. have a three-year-old and a six-year-old, and I don't want to pass it on. I don't have a gorilla, but I got a chimp in there, and they're six times stronger <laughs> than a, a Schwarzenegger. So I'd like to, you know. Fight, I, have of, I have the cast
2: of Goodfellas in me somewhere. So I got a whole – I got five families I got a knockout. Wow. So I will say that we are trying to start a team psychedelics.
3: So for people Ooh. that want to become monthly donors, we have about uh, 1,400 or so. We're trying to get up to 10,000. So if anybody wants to support us with Team Psychedelics, and the other thing is um, June 18th to 25th in 2023, so two years from now, we're having what we call Psychedelic Science 2023 Psychedelic City, and it's going to be in Denver. We're expecting like 10,000 people. We've got the convention center, all the hotels. We're trying to get Red Rocks. We would love Dead & Company to play at this event. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll see what I can gonna do. It's going to be the psychedelic community coming together from around the world to sort of the new doorway. Uh, because we think end of 2023, we'll have prescription approval. And psilocybin will be a year behind. We're going also uh, to start research in Europe. We've got a big fundraising plan of $150 million, 50 million a year for three years. We're looking at all different ways to raise that. We've raised over 115 million so far. But what's wow. going to happen, we think, in uh, November of 2022 is there's going to be something like the Oregon Psilocybin Initiative and psychedelic and drug decrim on the ballot in Colorado. Nice. And Beautiful. it may likely pass. So that we want to have, when we say psychedelic science, psychedelic city, um, we want to have psychedelic ceremonies around the conference oh. legal. Mm. So that's Beautiful. our long term goal that we're moving towards hopefully in a little bit less than two years we'll be able to see some of you all there and
2: let us know how we can help (laughs) you know we have like jam crews like i want psychedelic crews like just get on a boat and just wherever we land we land this is all fantastic news it's all progress and you're doing so much incredible work rick and you and your team yeah we can't thank you enough for your time today
3: yeah, well, thank you for helping us spread the word. And it's been a pleasure. I mean, this time has flew by.
2: We'd love to it have did. you back. If you'd, if you'd be happy
3: to come back, yeah. we'll have yeah, you for and sure. and uh, I don't know if you, I can send you some pictures of me and my wolf.
2: <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> please.
4: <laughs> Dude, yeah. Kind
2: of, uh, okay. And some T-shirts.
1: I, I need that psychedelic research society. Uh, yes, okay, we'll do I'll that. i wear it. So. I'm going to make a T-shirt. It's going to have you and a wolf on this side, and Martin Luther King on this side, and be like Mount Rushmore. That's how you do oh,
3: oh, okay. There's time. Let me. I'll be a little bit late for my next thing. Let me, let me just want to say one yes, thing. Yes. There's the um, the Good Friday experiment.
1: Yeah, which is incredible. That. So it's
3: about it was Timothy Leary did it. It was 1962, and it was trying to figure out can psychedelics promote a religious experience? And the experiment took 20 divinity students from Andover Newton Theological School. They went into Boston University's Marsh Chapel and they all had um, a pill. Some had psilocybin, some had placebo. And I did a 25-year follow-up to that study. And But, but what I want to share is that the minister for that was um, Reverend Howard Thurman. Yeah. And so he is one of the more outstanding African-American ministers. But the important thing is that he was studied with Gandhi. And he was Martin Luther King's mentor because Martin Luther King got a PhD at Boston University and he worked with Howard Mm. Thurman. And Howard Thurman was very interested in the mystical experience and the political implications of that. So when Leary and Walter Pankey, who did the experiment, came looking for a place in church to do this ceremony, they went to Howard Thurman. And he said yes, that they could do it. And Howard Thurman is the one that really got um, nonviolence into the civil rights movement in the 60s. He's the one that counseled Martin Luther King from his time with Gandhi and others. And I'll just say on the plane home from um, um, Austin, I watched the movie uh, about John Lewis. Yeah. And about how he was um, such, you know, marched with Martin Luther King and was beaten up, arrested 45 times and all this. But I think this connection, this hope of how that Reverend Howard Thurman had, that this mystical experience, if we feel our connectivity to each other, that really can have political implications.
4: Absolutely. And for
3: those that are interested, we I recovered the actual sermon from 1962, so we have the tape recording of Howard Thurman speaking on Good Friday. Oh, wow. While the people in the basement chapel were doing still side.
2: Oh, I got to hear that.
1: <laughs> yes, I would love indeed. to hear
2: that. Yeah, I'll send oh, you
3: the link. Yeah, yeah, please do.
1: This is yeah, amazing. So Howard
3: Thurman and this idea of um, how nonviolence becomes part of the civil rights movement a line from gandhi it was through and there's a psychedelic connection to it it's just amazing that's
2: beautiful that's That's great yeah please put that out wrap that up in the t-shirt when you send it to me (laughs) (laughs) rick stick stick with us for a minute everybody thank you so much for joining and please uh, maps.org for everything uh rick and company rick thank you so much catch everyone next time